Well, welcome to the final in the 2021 lecture series of the Annual Moore College Lectures. Uh, my name is Mark Thompson, and as the principal of the college, I'm glad you've been able to join us for the grand finale of The Triune God and The Choosing Self. I'm very sorry for the technical problems we've had so far, but we're hoping uh, that we've been able to solve them now and that we'll be able to proceed with the lecture without interruption. If you've been able to join us each morning this week and when the series began last Thursday night, you'll know what a rich feast we've been served by this year's lecturer, our own Dr David Honey. Each lecture has been stimulating and richly edifying. We push deeper into scripture than many of us have gone before in a number of areas, and I'm sure each one of us has been given much to reflect on in the days and weeks ahead. I, for one, am looking forward to the book, which I trust will emerge from the lectures in due course. You might remember that last Thursday night, we were given a penetrating analysis of our current situation. We learned of the crisis of identity that has been a legacy of both the Enlightenment and Romanticism, and of our desperate attempt to hold things together by a matrix of personal choices. And in that light, David strikingly posed the question, what happens when God's choice of Jesus confronts the choosing self? On Monday, we explored what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ to be God's choice for himself. It was a heady diet of rich biblical Trinitarian theology. Then on Tuesday, we examined the wonderfully stimulating suggestion that at its heart, sin is envy, envy of the beloved son, envy of the chosen Messiah, envy ultimately of God. On Wednesday, we considered the cross and the Messiah's work of reconciliation, God's choice of the incarnate son, his person and his work, and the destruction of envy. And then just yesterday, we had an opportunity to rejoice at the perfecting work of the Spirit in vindicating Jesus as Messiah and Lord and in forming the church. Now, today, we reach the finale as David draws the threads together and asks again what happens when God's choice of Jesus confronts the choosing self. As has been the case for um, each of these lectures, an outline of the lecture has been provided, which you can access by clicking the button labelled Download Handout on the live stream page. And again, as has been the case throughout the lectures, David has said he will answer some questions after the lecture, and you'll be able to do that through the Slido app. You'll see the button labelled Ask Questions via Slido on the same live stream page. You can use that button to access the app to ask your question and to vote any other questions up the list. Let me remind you uh, that the live stream link for, the, for each of these lectures will be active for a week, uh, so you can watch them again or catch up on one you missed either in part or in full. And in a couple of weeks' time, recordings of the lectures will be available online, free of charge through the Moore College website. But before we go any further, let's turn to the scriptures and let me read to you from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not believe, sorry, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have had this time to uh, set aside to think of you, of your glorious Son, of your wonderful Spirit, of your work in the world that you have created and for the humankind that you have redeemed. And we pray for our brother as he brings the last of these lectures this morning. We ask that you might enable him to remember the things he has studied, that he might be able to speak with clarity and with, with conviction, and that he might speak your truth in such a way that strengthens us to live as faithful disciples of Jesus in the power of your spirit in this time in which you've placed us. 
So we commit our brother and this next hour into your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, wherever you are, will you join with me in welcoming David as he brings his final lecture? Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you uh, for this last time. Uh, I want to express my thanks to the Moore College Council and the principal for the uh, opportunity uh, to be the one who delivers these lectures. Uh, I can say that it's uh, been a first for me, certainly, and a first for you in two dimensions, that's for sure, uh, of all the great worthies who were announced uh, in the 43 uh, times that these lectures have been delivered. Uh, this is the first time it's been done in two dimensions. Maybe that alone will be uh, the memorable part. I want to thank uh, Daniel uh, and the team who've worked so hard to uh, enable us to broadcast the lectures in this way uh, and all those who have worked in the background uh, to support their efforts. And I'd also like to thank uh, my wife and uh, family for their support in uh, putting up with me for the last six months and especially in these uh, last 10 days or so. Uh, their patience has been a real blessing and their love is always uh, a strength to me. Uh, since it's Friday, I thought I would wear mufti, uh, a tie to uh, keep the principal happy. And... Uh, our Zoom stretch for the today is, uh, well, it's a posture of prayer, which I think we should always have. So, without any further ado, and in case we, uh, I've used up all our bandwidth already, I'm getting the thumbs up from uh, Daniel. Let's begin. A long time ago, on a video screen all too close, I began these lectures with this quote from Vaclav Havel, the former playwright, uh, and dissident, President of the Czech Republic. Actually, the whole quote reads like this, as you can see on your screen, I hope. Harville made this remark some 50 years ago, and like everything in the Twitter sphere, some say things are worse, some say the same, and some say that it's never really that bad, and we've come so far since then, and things are getting better all the time. Whatever the case, I'm a solutions guy, so I've pursued a description of how modern men and women have attempted to work against the kind of fragmentation and incoherence that Harville refers to. How do modern humans hold together the different relative coordinates they experience in life without God? My suggestion has been that it is as the choosing self that modern men and women attempt this feat. I am what, who I choose to be. If the Enlightenment motto was, I think, therefore I am, my suggestion is that the children and the grandchildren of the Enlightenment would prefer to say, I choose, therefore I am. The choosing self hates to be captured in sweeping generalisations and philosophers like Charles Taylor have recognised that and so his works on the modern identity, sources of self and the secular age made much use of the term social imaginaries. 
The social imaginary is a way of capturing how people employ a set of values, institutions, laws and symbols to imagine their, societal, their social whole or society. For better or for worse, I have taken a different tack and because I'm theologically pessimistic about the choosing self, I've tried to describe it as being like a syndrome. As you can see from the screen, a syndrome has the sense of collection, a set of signs and symptoms. They don't always appear the same way or in the same number. Some work together well, creating a sense of stability. Some don't, and that makes things worse. I chose this analogy as a way of capturing Havel's description of incoherent fragments and relative coordinates. To simplify matters, I've grouped some of those relative coordinates into clusters that I have labelled romanticism, capitalism and suspicion. That is, at times the choosing self is romantic in its aesthetics, at times the choosing self is capitalist in its values, and at times the choosing self is suspicious in its practices. Each of these symptom clusters have their own signs, and so the possibilities for variation only increase. But that, in my view, also makes the syndrome a better explanation of why the choosing self is the way that it is whenever you meet her, with all her seemingly incoherent fragments corresponding to different relative coordinates. I contrasted my approach from Taylor's, as unwise as that might be, insofar as while he appeals to Rousseau and Hegel as the romantics whose philosophy made its way into the modern social imaginary of what Taylor calls the age of authenticity, I chose a more decidedly Germanic romantic culture of Bildung, the process of self-determination inspired by the aesthetic genius that, especially when rendered into liberal Protestantism, made more easily amalgamated with the rise of free market capitalism. I also paid more attention to the contribution of Spinoza's pantheism as the means by which romantics could be both spiritual and naturalistic at the same time. In the end, though, I agree with Taylor about the importance of Marx, Nietzsche and Freud that I have labelled the masters of suspicion. Well, actually, Paul Ricoeur named them that and I borrowed his label. I've tried to keep my project as accessible as possible this week and so I've been asking a basic question since last Thursday. What happens when God's choice of Jesus confronts the choosing self? On Monday, I qualified what I meant by God's choice of Jesus, that God the Father has chosen to create a world through and for his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Borrowing from Bonhoeffer, I proposed that in his choice of Messiah Jesus as the Lord, the Father offers the choosing self a share in the, his reality at the same time as the reality of the world is on offer, since all things hold together in the Lord Jesus Christ. During the week, a couple of questioners have wondered whether there is really anything new about my concept of the choosing self, that human beings have always been like this one way or another. I agree, and that is why on Tuesday I changed focus to consider from a theological point of view what the choosing self's reaction to the offer that the Father grants in Messiah Jesus. As Paul describes it, 
The choosing self is alienated from the father and hostile in its intentions towards his beloved son. So hostile, in fact, that the fruit of the choosing self's alienation is envy towards the choice of Jesus as Lord. Yet the envy towards the son that we explored in the gospel accounts is simply the climax of a long story of envy towards the sovereign choices of the father for his son. Of course, the long story of envy comes to its climax at the cross. And so on Wednesday, we reconsidered the gracious nature of the Father's will towards the choosing self. The Father chooses to have his image and firstborn desecrated and deposed. He gives the choosing self over to vent its envy in all its hostile and evil fury. Nevertheless, out of his pleasure in the Father and in the power of the Spirit, the royal son submits to death on a cross. As he does, we discover that all the fullness of God, his presence and action are at work, propitiating wrath and expiating sin in the bodily form of the crucified Messiah. What is more, in this unified divine act, the Father is reconciled to the world as his Son is enthroned on the cross in his royal heavenly glory. The Lord saves from Golgotha. The truth of this victory requires the perfect, perfecting work of the Father's Spirit through and for the Messiah in the form of vindication. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus is raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. This is the Pentecost testimony that the Spirit enables in those that the Messiah baptises. At Pentecost, the apostles publicly proclaim and acclaim that God the Father has made the crucified Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And in fact, it is now the right of the exalted Messiah of God to point out, pour out the Spirit of the Lord on all flesh to announce the last days. Life in the middle begins for the world as the Father constitutes the church in the perfecting work of the Spirit through Messiah Jesus, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Yesterday we saw that the vindicating work of the Spirit had two aspects to it. Firstly, it was the power of the Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead and raised him to the right hand of the Father. Then secondly, the Father constitutes the Church as the body of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This community of promise is distinguished in the subsequent narrative. They are distinguished from within Jerusalem amongst all the God-fearing Jews They are distinguished from within Israel as the ethnic animosity between Jews and Samaritans is annulled. The age-old envy between them over worship of Yahweh is diffused since they both now worship in spirit and truth that the Messiah Jesus is the Lord. Finally, the spirit-constituted church is... (coughs) Excuse me, is... is, (coughs) Sorry. It's a natural glitch, not a technical one. Finally, the spirit-constituted church is distinguished as the new humanity that includes both Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall of hostility that was the law has been torn down in the body of the crucified and exalted Christ Jesus, the image of God and firstborn over all creation. This is the eschatological share in the reality of the world that confronts the choosing self as she, in Bonhoeffer's words, finds the reality of the world always already born, adopted and reconciled in the reality of God. 
which in, is his choice of Jesus as Messiah and Lord. Since Christ Jesus is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, the reconciliation that Bonhoeffer refers to happens in the person of Christ himself. In the power of the Spirit, a share in the reality of God through Christ is offered to the choosing self so that she too may be adopted and reconciled in the body of Christ. You will recall that on Tuesday I began the story of envy from the perspective that the choosing self is a heart turned in on itself. This was a phrase handed down from Luther through Bonhoeffer to describe the effects of sin on the choosing self's attempt at holding all things together through the power of its will. At this point I introduce some of the cultural context that facilitates the choosing self's self-absorption. I also introduced Nietzsche's suspicion towards my analysis. According to him, it is the save, saving morality of Christian, uh, the, sorry, the slave morality of Christianity, where resentment or envy has its home. The slave morality that would have the choosing self abandon its will to power is the product of resentment, resentment or envy. An obsession with the other is a feature of the slave's resentment. They need some kind of opposing external world in order to act at all. They are merely reactive. The noble or master morality seeks out its opposite so that it can say yes to itself even more thankfully and exultantly. Thus the master morality is spontaneous, saturated with life and passion. The ability to be concerned with yourself alone is power while the desire to engage with others causes suffering in others, it's cruelty. Yet there is more from the masters of suspicion for us to add to this portrait. But first, deep breath and this morning's Zoom stretch. As I mentioned in the introductory lecture last Thursday night, Freud is suspicious or at least teaches the choosing self to be suspicious about its past or the story that it tells itself about that past. With the help of Freud's psychoanalysis, the riddles of romantic experience, the hidden meanings of dreams, the true nature of eros and the hidden reasons for failure in the quest for self-actualization all found an answer. The true nature of eros for the choosing self was, according to Freud, that achieving orgasm was the key to human experience. The sexualization of childhood behaviours and, de and development was key to Freud's psychoanalytic theories. As Truman comments, this, as much as anything, made sexual behaviour central to the concept of humanity. And I'm quoting Truman here, for Freud, the taxonomy of all life stages is sexual. In fact, sexual development is social development. Freud offers two famous accounts of the origin of moral conscience. In one, conscience arises through internalisation or introjection of parental superegos as the way of resolving the Oedipal complex. In others, conscience arises as a result of the introjection of innate aggressive drives whose taming is necessary precondition of civilization. So basically, we internalise uh, our desires uh, at the encouragement of our parents 
or we repress our desires for the sake of being able to get on together in what we would otherwise call civilization. In this situation for Freud, religion is a Feuerbach projection of parental feelings on the divine. It's an illusion from a more primitive, in fact infantile version of human society. And here I quote Freud, religion is an attempt to get control over the sensory world in which we are placed by means of the wish world which we have developed inside us a result of biological and physiological necessities. But it cannot achieve its end. Its doctrines carry with them the stamp of the times in which they originated, the ignorant childhood days of the human race. Its consolations deserve no trust. Experience teaches us that the world is not a nursery. The ethical commands to which religion seeks to lend its weight require some other foundations. Instead, for human society cannot do without them. And it is dangerous to link up obedience to them with religious belief. If one attempts to assign to religion its place in man's evolution, it seems not so much to be a lasting acquisition as a parallel to the neuroses which the civilised individual must pass through on its way from childhood to maturity. That's Freud in Moses and Monotheism. Nevertheless, religion has its social purposes for civilization. Civilized man has exchanged a portion of his possibilities of happiness for a portion of security, says Freud, in Discontents of Civilization, uh, cited in Truman. Of course, this means civilization is the answer to the unhappiness that sexual chaos would involve, but itself creates another kind of unhappiness, that of sexual repression and frustration. Again, tr quoting Truman there, his uh, summation. Enter the madman, as I said last week, or at least the adman, Edward Bernays. I suggested that one of the key features of the capitalist cluster of symptoms for the choosing self was commodification. Through the work of Bernays, we have the commodification of Freud's theories about desire and sexuality. Bernays focused on the de de deterministic role that emotions and symbols play in human perception, especially when it comes to creating a sense of unity in mind and body. He argues, and I quote, since public relations deals with human beings, every phrase of, phase of human action and reaction must be taken into account. Part of public relations is skill is knowing when to use one method and when another in what combination to be persuasive. If civilization prevents us from having all the sex we want, then marketing will continue to push the choosing self to reconsider whether that is necessary given the materials, material benefits for every avenue of life when sex is used to sell them. Now, the father confronts the choosing self, this choosing self, the heart turned in on itself, with all his fullness in the bodily form of his image and firstborn, the Lord Jesus. We explored this together on Wednesday when I portrayed the cross as God's choice to hand over his presence and the mediator of his rule to the hostile intentions and evil actions of Jews and Gentiles. As Athanasius put it, the world of God came in order that he who is the image might be able to renew humanity which is in the image of God. 
As I mentioned last week, through the gospel of the crucified Christ, the Spirit opens up a space between our curated self in the social domain and the hidden self of loathing that put the risen Jesus there and puts the risen Jesus there for us. Christ Jesus puts to death our social self and transforms our hidden self through the forgiveness of our sins. The divine spark is the gift of a new self transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus from the love of God. The desecrated image and deposed firstborn is for us the wisdom and power of God. Quoting from Paul, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Yet with its heart turned inwards, the choosing self cannot see what God has done for it (coughs) until, in the riches of his glorious grace, the Father takes the initiative to grant the choosing self the power of the Spirit in the inner self to turn towards Christ Jesus as God for us, to grasp the foolishness of its erotic desires and to shame its will to power, or to the shame of its will to power, as uh, Paul has described from uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Now, we won't be going for as long today, but I still want you to take a break uh, for five minutes, uh, turn away from the screen, and God willing and in the power of the Spirit, we'll be able to return to it. Uh, But let's take a break for five minutes, uh, and we'll come back and look more closely at how God works in his Spirit to turn the choosing self out of himself. Well, welcome back. Uh, I certainly hope you have been able to make it back and thank you for your patience with us and making the move over to YouTube. The point we have reached now is how God works through his son and in his spirit to make contact uh, intimately and personally with the choosing self. Uh, And as I've argued uh, elsewhere... Uh, particularly most recently in my uh, monograph, The Last Things. The term mindset uh, of the spirit describes our intentions, aims, aspirations or strivings. It is a person's basic disposition that guides and or governs his or her reactions and actions within a network of relationships that make up crucially life. In the context of Romans 8, the difference between the mindset of the spirit and the mindset of the flesh is the direction in which they lead a person. Paul says the mindset of the flesh is to death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. That's Romans 8, 6. We might also add that the mindset of the flesh leads inward and the mindset of the spirit leads outward through Christ to the Father. Yesterday I mentioned that we should understand the Father's agency in the Spirit as the Spirit's perfecting work for the exaltation of Messiah Jesus as Lord. In terms of the perfecting work of the Spirit for the choosing self, the mindset of the Spirit is that which the Reformers called the work of regeneration. As Calvin remarked, the mindset of the Spirit is the secret agency of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. More precisely, the work of the Spirit is to lead the intentions, aims, aspirations or strivings of the individual 
according to the wisdom, counsel and ordered disposition of the image and firstborn himself. Jesus said, when the Spirit uh, comes, he will testify about righteousness, that is the righteousness of the Son towards the Father. So in Romans 8.15, we we read, You have received the Spirit of adoption, in whom we cry, Abba, Father. This act of redirection towards the Father in heaven is the Spirit's testimony together with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul grasps the essential nature of that disposition by way of reference to the experience of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The perfecting work of the Spirit is made explicit as the disposition of the image and firstborn Son towards the Father in God's children. The perfection of the royal and eternal son's righteousness towards God is revealed in the words, not my will, but yours be done. In the same way, the spirit perfected the incarnate son in self-sacrificial submission towards the father. The spirit of adoption perfects the disposition of the son in the sons and daughters of God, who hear the promises of God, respond in hope and embody that hope in their prayers. Now, considering the Arian view of salvation that we've been alerted to by Athanasius, the exemplary nature of the Son's work for us, it's essential that we understand what the mindset of the Spirit perceives. If it was simply the exemplary nature of the Son's submission, the choosing self is merely being given a different way of exercising her will. Instead, the mindset of the Spirit recognised that the Son has fulfilled the Father's will for us. The Spirit empowers the choosing self to want what the Father wants for her, that is, Christ's faithfulness in her stead. Turning away the power of sexual desire, especially under the sneering gaze of Nietzsche, will be painful. Nevertheless, through the perfecting work of the Spirit, the choosing self joins with the Son in submitting to the Father, joining in his passion for the possibilities of God's perfecting work, and therefore we suffer with him, Paul says in Romans 8.17. In the first instance, this is made manifest in our lives, as Paul describes it, from the flow of Romans 7 to 8. The chief struggle of the mindset of the flesh is, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. The mindset of the flesh that leads to death is that from which Paul seeks deliverance. The Spirit's mindset enables the children of God to sacrifice self to the will of God and experience the sufferings of Christ Jesus in that event, along with the benefits of forgiveness that come through his paschal sacrifice, the fruit of his high priestly intercession. So they and all creation groan in the Spirit as they seek to resist the futility of the world, marred as it is by sin, death and evil in anticipation of the redemption of their bodies and the freedom that justification brings. The Spirit leads them towards the summing up of all things in Christ in such a way as to deliver us from the evil one. Or as Calvin described it, the Spirit takes on himself a part of the burden by which our weakness is is oppressed, so that he not only helps and succors us but lifts us up. In fact, the Spirit's mindset leads us to long for that which has been achieved in the Lord Jesus 
to be perfected in all of creation. The work of the Spirit then in our inner selves that frees our wills to want for ourselves what the Father wants for us in Christ is the path to the image of the Word being renewed in us, as Athanasius described it. The establishment of the spiritual mindset in a Christian by the Father results, as Paul remarks, in our being renewed in the image of the Lord who created us. Hence, just as the Spirit empowered Jesus to eclipse the temple as the presence of God in the world and to establish the conditions for right worship of God the Father on the earth, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own, we were bought with a price, therefore we honour God with our bodies. In context, Paul is exalting the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality on the way to discussing the righteous expression of physical relations through husbands and wives in marriage as a union of bodies. However, throughout the Corinthian experience and correspondence, the most basic activities done in and with the body, that is eating, drinking, loving, learning, ought to be led by the spirit who comes from God as distinct from the spirit of the world. Thus, Christians live towards the coming kingdom, renouncing their former embodied activities as immoral, whether they be idolatry, adultery, same-sex practices, theft, greed, envy, since the body is now for the Lord. Instead, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, the Christian anticipates being transformed into the image of the Lord. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. More generally, still, while keeping with the cultic tone, Paul encourages the Christians in Rome to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, as an act of spiritual worship. Now, this, of course, is a very different view of bringing mind and body together than the one employed by Bernays in which drives the advertising industry. Nietzsche would no doubt be furious and Freud dismissive. Nevertheless, the mindset of the spirit produces a love of one's whole self born from adoption by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Miroslav Volf said, the new birth is neither a conversion to our authentic inner self nor a migration of the soul into a heavenly realm, but a translation of a person into the house of God erected in the midst of the world that belongs to the Lord Jesus. To the extent that God's Spirit strengthens us to exercise self-control over our bodily urges, we want more for our life in the body than Freud expects. There is still pressure to want more than can be expected of the Spirit this side of the resurrection. The romantic desire for change is an aspiration so easily confused with progress, as I mentioned last week. The potential for social media to create a view of truth that enables the genius to intuit beautiful reality in the world is ever-present. We can have it all now. Platforms like Instagram provide the power of the artist to create her own image in the world for us to worship. Her bildung, in a way never imagined by the romantics of the 20th century, let alone the 19th. 
The assumption that the Spirit of God is being revealed in that image is a common aspect of Prosperity Gospel's version of sinless perfectionism. Sinless perfectionism is, and its modern variants in the Prosperity Gospel, is an eschatological confusion of the perfecting work of the Spirit. In a kind of personal post-millennialism, for some Christians, perfection before the resurrection is a real expectation. Even if the perfection isn't in the form of sinlessness, perfectionist tendencies in men and women can easily be magnified in the virtual world. Such perfection need not imply a dispensation from doing good and attending to all the ordinances of God, says Wesley, nor a freedom from ignorance, mistake, temptation and a thousand infirmities necessarily connected with the flesh and the blood. The work of the Spirit in the believer should ensure a pure love reigning alone in the heart and life, says Wesley, and should keep the children of God from sinning voluntarily. Now, among Pentecostal Christians, it's anticipated that this moment of perfection may come upon the Christian sometime after justification, that is, sometime after trusting the promises of God in Jesus, hence the immersion of belief in a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. I quote Wesley again, None therefore ought to believe that the work is done till there is added the testimony of the Spirit, witnessing his entire sanctification as clearly as his justification. Now, there are important eschatological issues to address when distinguishing the perfecting work of the Spirit from any concept of sinless perfectionism and any confusion with a perfect bildung that we might create through social media. In Romans 8.11, Paul established the connection between the archetypal event of the Spirit's perfecting Messiah Jesus and the Spirit's subsequent and derivative actions in the experience of God's adopted children. The one who raised Christ from the dead by his Spirit will bring life to your mortal bodies via the indwelling of his Spirit in you, says Paul. By the same means as the Father raised Christ from the dead, he will also regenerate our mortal bodies in his perfecting spirit. Yet, as Calvin commented, in the person of Christ was exhibited a specimen of the power which belongs to the whole body of the church. It's a down payment, as Paul says to the Ephesians. It's the quality of the power at work in the believer that counts, not the quantity The Spirit's activity prior to the resurrection is a first fruits, a deposit. In reality, the life that is given to our mortal bodies through the Spirit is, in the first instance, a specimen, a promise of the everlasting life enjoyed by the resurrected Lord Jesus. Therefore, our experience is one of struggle, knowing the truth about sin and death and evil, yet at the same time, not being ultimately delivered from it until our bodies are redeemed in the general resurrection. That is to say, the end of this world time of sin and death is foreseeable by the people who believe and who struggle against the power of this world with the power of the world to come, who thus enter into Christ's struggle. That's Maltman. Thus the great promise of Romans 8, that the Spirit intercedes for us when we do not know what to pray as we ought, since it is the Spirit of Christ who ever lives to intercede for us. 
that is the work that who is at work in us we are not abandoned in our trials instead we are delivered he who searches the hearts of knows the spirit's mindset because he intercedes for the holy ones according to the will of god at this point our attention needs to return to the work of the spirit in constituting the body of christ the various individual experiences of being empowered to will what the Father wills for us in Christ are nevertheless tempered by the eschatological reality of sin, death and evil still being present in the world. Yet it is not the Father's will for us that we should endure such suffering alone. The presence of Christ with us notwithstanding. And so we return again as a new self constituted in the body of Christ. Those who bear the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins are constituted in his body, a dwelling in the spirit, as we saw yesterday. During life in the middle, the rule of the king in the spirit is revealed in the church's acts of confession, in, in the sacraments done in the name of the king, but not as the king himself. This is because the first activity of the spirit in constituting the church for the risen Christ is to vindicate the reign of Christ over the church, even as the Spirit distinguishes him from it. The church is the temple and the Spirit is constituted for the, from the many temples of the Spirit, since, as we saw yesterday, by one Spirit we're all baptised into the one body. So the mindset of the Spirit is manifest in the one body of Christ, even though the body is made up of many members. The mindset of the spirit that guides the church is therefore the same Christ-like passion. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. For we also are weak in him, yet towards the world we shall live with him by God's power, says Paul to the Corinthians. As we await together the return of the Lord Jesus, groaning in expectation for the redemption of our bodies, and some of us will groan more than others, Churches live beautiful lives as aliens and strangers in order that we should, that should the nations misrepresent or misinterpret our deeds as evil, they will nevertheless give glory to the God on the last day. Thus, the church assumes the place in the plan of God as his special possession, the special possession of the Christ who presents it to God the Father. And in both its existence and proclamation, it testifies to the messianic victory So, insofar as the divine achievement is revealed in human activity. However, the spirit-constituted church reveals the counterintuitive nature of the Father's wisdom because as the spiritual body of the Messiah crucified in the spirit, it is testimony to the Father's mysterious government of history. As I mentioned yesterday, the church is the new people of promise belonging to the one for whom the nations are an inheritance. The end of the earth is his possession. It's therefore already a political entity, albeit mysterious and despicable to the world. In fact, it is or should be the church's polity as encapsulated in the mindset of the spirit that distinguishes the church from the world even as he sends the church into the world. The great failures of the church that had become so well rehearsed in the last 25 years or so and church leadership really amounts to the church losing the image of Christ and gaining the image of the world. Whether it's the abuse of power 
or the general uh, need to accommodate itself to the world, the church has lost the image of Christ and simply taken on the image of the world. Until the resurrection, the body of Christ is no more perfect than the bodies that make it up. Accordingly, while it may be necessary in particular cases to exclude from fellowship those who commit serious offences and remain unrepentant, the body of Christ remains those very people who are doing the things that he deplores. What distinguishes the culture of the church from romantic society around it is the spirit's virtue of self-control, as opposed to the desire for self-expression and discipline of submitting yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. All this over and against the self-determination of the choosing self-culture. In all, the church is a temple in the spirit to the name of Jesus the Christ when it hears his address to forgiven sinners and who therefore groan along with all creation in anticipation of the revelation of the children of God. In this way, and only this way, the church is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Ultimately, the one who is now seated at the right hand will come back. The until of Psalm 110 verse 1 will reach its fulfilment as the perfecting work of the Spirit is revealed in all its glory. On that day the trumpets will sound and all creation will experience the true return of the King. The one through whom and for whom all things have been made will be sent by the Father to enter into judgment and receive his everlasting inheritance. The dead will be raised in everlasting bodies and the true son will be vindicated against his enemies everlastingly as every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On this day, the perfecting work of the Spirit will also be complete in the body of Christ herself. The bride will be brought before the king in all her splendour, holy, faultless and blameless before him. What happens when God's choice of Jesus confronts the choosing self? In the power of the Spirit, he or she receives a share in the Father's choice to exalt his Son as Christ Jesus, the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. At the same time, he or she receives a share in the reality of the world that the Father has created for him. This share is the gift the gift of the Spirit in whom the choosing self becomes a son or daughter of the Father. This self is an eschatological gift from the Father and through his Son, one being transformed in the power of the Spirit into the likeness of Jesus. Until Christ returns, we each will have our own burdens to bear, as Paul told the Galatians, depending on the circumstances of our embodiment. Yet in the power of the Spirit, we deny ourselves and take up the cross of Christ, living in his passion as a protest against the world that resists him. The strength to do so, as I said, comes from the Spirit, and we do so that Christ himself and we do so knowing that Christ himself intercedes for us before the Father on our behalf. Thus, our weaknesses and our failures, as ever, are covered by his merits as our great high priest presents his righteousness before the Father on our behalf. What is the Lord Jesus doing for us in our frail, tempted bodies? He's praying for us. 
presenting his body in all its glory to the Father. Consequently, the mindset of the Spirit brings freedom to put off the old self, one governed by the will to power, energised by fleshly desires, and put on the image of Christ. As the Spirit constitutes the body of Christ, each member, gifted with a new self in Christ, is also a gift to others. Since, we, the, since the particular divine grace of the Spirit is freedom in relationship and for relationship, first with the Father through Christ, and then with the rest of the body as I described yesterday. In all, the fruits of the Spirit and the eschatological virtues of Christ, faith, hope and love, form the lifeblood of the community as we live together towards the coming of the Christ, for all things hold together in him. Thank you. We'll just give David a moment uh, to catch his breath. Uh, we have a number of questions. Uh, we've got a few moments for questions uh, this morning. Uh, a few things to say before we finish at the end. Um, I should say, David, that uh, it's amazing the people who have joined into these lectures and who have been submitting questions. Uh, and the first one to offer to you is from Marx's sixth thesis on Feuerbach. It's amazing. Um, and here's the question. You've posited the modern self as radical chooser. Could you comment on the progressive axiom that the self is determined by external forces and social shaping? I confess I can't bring Marx's seventh premise, thesis. seventh thesis about Feuerbach to mind. I think I, if I've understood all the words in that uh, question in the right order. Uh, this is the answer to that question uh, comes from, say, uh, Taylor's thesis that the modern era is an age of authenticity. Uh, Martin Heidegger, who I uh, mentioned earlier and I think is referred to either yesterday or today, saw uh, the quest for true being as the quest for authenticity over and against the they, the, uh, the bland... Uh, general self uh, of popular mass culture that constantly presses its self upon us. Uh, and so uh, the fashions and trends of consumerism are the mass self trying to impose itself upon uh, the individual, design, uh, according to Heidegger. And so experiencing true being is choosing against that, uh, getting out of our averageness, our everydayness, our fallenness, uh, as Heidegger called it, choosing authentically ourselves uh, over and against the self that's projected to us uh, by mass culture. Now, I think the uh, everyday experience of that uh, is now social media. We are constantly pressed with an ideal self, uh, all the more distorted by the power of social media to, to create uh, almost a, a platonic form, although I would argue more uh, a demon. And the choosing self lives with the 
task of collecting together various versions of itself from that mass self uh, as the self becomes a commodity. Uh, and so the platforms, whether it's Twitter or Pinterest or whatever they are, is where the choosing self projects that image of itself into the world in the first instance against uh, the power of mass self. But, of course, as we've seen tragically in various ways, the self simply becomes another commodity to be traded by the mass self. Well, David, David Bentley Hart asks, can you elaborate how God chooses Jesus Christ? Are you using this term univocally to the self that chooses or in another way, and if so, how? Oh, like most things that David Bentley Hart writes, they sound beautiful, but I struggle to understand them. Uh, as we uh, made our way through this week, I grounded the concept of the choice of Jesus as the Christ in the royal promise that God makes to David to be uh, God's chosen one, to be the anointed, to be the Messiah, is to be in the line of David, to be the inheritor of Yahweh's promise to rule the world through his uh, dedicated mediator. That is, uh, David and his son, whose throne would be everlasting. And so we saw, uh, I think it was uh, Wednesday, that uh, key to the nativity narratives is the announcement to Mary that her son will inherit the throne of his father David. And so in that sense, he's prepared to be God's choice of Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the chosen Messiah who, instead of uh, living the part of a military leader like his great-grandfather David comes in peace to Jerusalem riding on a colt and offers himself as a sacrifice for salvation to defeat the enemies of God's people. He is the kinsman redeemer in that sense and yet in his cross he is crowned and enthroned as God's choice of Messiah who brings salvation defeating God's enemies through the sacrifice of himself. And so I argued uh, the perfecting work of the Spirit is to vindicate the claim of Jesus that he is that Christ, that God was nevertheless in him working salvation for the people of God against their enemies. I hope that was an answer to the question. There are loads of questions coming in. Uh, we won't be able to answer them all, I'm afraid, so we'll have to find some way in which David can post some answers in the future. Uh, but let me bring this one. This is an anonymous question. Uh, what would you say to the preaching which maximises our union with Christ and minimises other parts of our life? You're, you're not a swimmer, your identity is in Christ, etc. Well, the preachers who uh, commend us to see our identity in Christ are telling the truth. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is then what? Uh, and I think that's why Paul goes to uh, considerable lengths in the uh, various epistles to give us some concrete sense of how our identity in Christ plays out in the everyday. Uh, long before the Romantics, 
uh, sought the uh, experience of the living force of things in the everyday, the Apostle Paul, Peter, John were articulating what it looks like to live in Christ in our everyday as we put off our self uh, and put on the new Christ. And so uh, the various experiences, certainly the temptations uh, of envy, selfishness, slander, those sorts of things, those moral uh, changes are principally the kind of uh, change that the Spirit is working in us to make Christ present in us. Because ultimately the form of Christ that's made present in us is a dedication of the self to God as our Heavenly Father. Uh, And so the particularities of our individual experience, uh, our particular embodiment, in the time and place that God has given us that body, uh, is affected by those circumstances but always geared towards Christ. Uh, And so, as we saw uh, at the end there, Paul encourages the uh, church in Colossians to set your hearts on things above where Christ is. And I think in the everyday, that uh, results in us facing each instance, uh, each opportunity, and asking the question, well, what does the Lord Jesus deserve of me here in my workplace, in my family, in my studies? Each one of those uh, instances, each one of those life experiences is an opportunity, a particular opportunity for us to manifest our identity in Christ in that particular way. Always asking ourselves, what does the Lord Jesus, who is my life, deserve in this particular situation today? Now we know from the gospel that he, uh, he deserves to be honoured as Lord of our lives and saviour of us as sinners. So we turn away from sin and towards Christ. We give up self-dominion to the dominion of Christ. And that will be painful uh, in various ways. And so Paul uh, explains to the various house, well, uses the household codes to explain what that might look like for husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters uh, and all those sorts of circumstances. Should we do one more? <laughs> I think since uh, he's been through so much, we ought to let Dietrich Bonhoeffer have a question. Uh, um, And he asks, how do you define self-control? And I suspect um, in the light of the choosing self, uh, that's a particularly interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Well, self-control is uh, choosing, uh, in some respects, as I just articulated... Uh, asking ourselves, what does the Lord Jesus deserve in this situation? My desires may be for one thing, certainly my self-gratification, uh, my self-magnification, uh, uh, my, my pride, my envy. All those reactions are uh, within me. And so asking myself, well, what does the Lord Jesus deserve here, who was powerful, uh, was absolutely free, and nevertheless took on the form of a servant towards others. So I give up my freedom for the sake of others because the freedom that the Spirit gives me is freedom for others. Uh, That's what it means to be controlled as a self in the broader perspective. And again, as I said uh, in the New Testament, Paul outlines a a plethora of instances 
uh, where we put off the desires of the flesh and put on Christ, and that is the uh, control of the self. Well, I'm, I'm sure that if you'd been in this room this morning, uh, no doubt you'd be joining in thunderous applause at this point. For David has uh, thought deeply, deeply about some very deep topics and he's introduced us to new ways of conceiving our contemporary situation and God's engagement with us and the entire human race. Uh, David's determination to be directed by the scriptures, to be thoroughly and explicitly Trinitarian at each point, his engagement with a wide range of thought, theological and otherwise, have made this not only an incredibly stimulating series of lectures, but as I said at the beginning, a deeply edifying one. So we are very grateful to you, brother, for serving us in this way. Uh, we're very grateful that you've widened our perspective so that we can see even more clearly the magnificence of our Lord and Saviour, the beloved and chosen Son of the Father to whom we are united in the Spirit. And uh, we'll be reflecting on many of the things that you said over, over a long time, and I'm hoping to see it all in print before too long. Now, we'd like to give you a small gift um, as a token of our gratitude and also of the high esteem in which you've held. Uh, I said we'd like to, but uh, it's still winging its, on, winging its way to us. <laughs> um, it hasn't arrived by the beginning of this lecture this morning. Uh, but we do have an earnest in line with uh, this lecture you gave today, we do have an earnest and anticipation which we'd like you to have now and which we hope you will enjoy as you uh, wait what is yet to come. But the trick is you need to open it in front of us all so we can see it now. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, um, thank you very much for this. And as I said, thank you for uh, in bearing with me uh, throughout this week, uh, speaking of uh, uh, all the many plans uh, that COVID has circumvented, especially the ones involving online shopping, my beloved wife, who is really uh, the, a, a big contributor to the, the me looking good in anything in the world, uh, orders me some other, a different jacket, uh, and that too is winging its way to us on uh, its coming to. Oh, what have we got here? <laughs> uh, I thought this might happen. Thank you. You're very kind. A new glass. I will, every time I drink about this, uh, I will think of standing in a room talking to Dale and the camera. <laughs> ah, thank you, David. We hope you enjoy the glasses. Well, in a moment, I'm going to pray and uh, bring this year's series of lectures to a close. But first, I want to thank you very much for being with us, um, even in this attenuated way. And uh, I want to share with you the exciting news that next year... When we hope the pandemic will be just a memory and the lectures will be able to be delivered in person, uh, they will be delivered by Professor Kelly Capick of Covenant College in the US, who will be speaking on a theology of the Christian life. And uh, uh, if you're a more college student watching these lectures now, you might like to know that your regular lectures will resume this morning at 11.15. But first, let's pray together as we close. Our Father, we are very grateful for the gifts that you give us as your people. We thank you for faithful teachers and we thank you for our brother David and the way you've used him this week. We thank you too, Father, for the work of your spirit in each of us and as a community of your people. 
And we pray that in the power of your spirit, we might give your son the glory that you want him to have amongst your creation and that we might therefore be your faithful people and children. Heavenly Father, we pray now in the light of all that we've heard that you might cause us to keep uh, thinking deeply about your word and shaping the way we act in our world in the light of it. And all of this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for being with us.